0: The Cambridge Animal Alphabet series celebrates Cambridge's connections with animals through literature, art, science and society. Here, P is for pet. When animals are welcomed into the domestic sphere, they reveal much about their owners. Dogs are the national favourite, and it all begins with the Victorians. What is a pet? The answer may seem straightforward. Pets are animals kept in the home for pleasure and companionship. But our interactions with pets are far more complex rooted as much in ownership and domination as in sentimentality and affection. Pets, of course, come in all shapes and sizes, and why shouldn't they? And often they say something about us. Legend has it that the French romantic poet, Gérard de Naval kept a pet lobster named Thibaut, who took it out on walks in Paris parks using a blue silk ribbon as a leash. When questioned about his choice of pets, Navarre replied, why should a lobster be any more ridiculous than a dog? or a cat, or a gazelle, or a lion, or any other animal that one chooses to take for a walk. I have a liking for lobsters. They are peaceful, serious creatures. They know the secrets of the sea. The scale of contemporary pet-keeping is remarkable. In the US, fur babies even outnumber human babies, and in the UK, almost a quarter of households have a dog, almost a fifth own a cat, and fish, which are often listed among pets in surveys, are even more popular. The keeping of these pets is one of the most significant of all human-animal relationships. The majority of pets live as part of the family. At the same time, many are poorly treated, and animal activists have called into question the legitimacy of keeping pets at all. In his recent book, At Home and Astray, The Domestic Dog in Victorian London, cultural geographer Dr Philip Howell confines his analysis to the nation's number one pet and asks, why did the British fall so hopelessly in love with dogs? And what are the limits to this affection? Howell is particularly interested in space and the ways in which people and animals share it. He explores how the Victorians brought favoured animals in from the cold to enjoy a place in the centre of the domestic sphere while relegating unwanted others to shelters and inevitable destruction. As cities expanded, firmer boundaries developed between private and public zones. In the private zone, the dog became a pet. In the public realm, it became a stray. The dog was portrayed as an animal that naturally loved the family and suffered as a homeless vagrant on the streets. In the second half of the 19th century, London's population boomed. The newly affluent middle classes became increasingly focused on the creation of the home as an oasis of domestic bliss. At the same time, Londoners became further removed from the natural world as many animals, with the notable exception of horses, disappeared from view. As London grew, sanitation regulations were imposed the herds of dairy cows needed to supply the capital with milk migrated away from the city centre. Abattoirs and livestock markets were shifted to outlying districts. From the mid-19th century, sheep and cattle, pigs and geese were no longer driven through the streets of central London. Even dog carts were banned. Howell argues that as other animals disappeared from the streets, the pet dog filled a vacuum. Dogs, or at least certain polite dogs, were invited in from the cold to join the family at the fireside In the intimate space of the domestic world, the dog was precious rather than productive, even childlike in its reliance on the humans that surrounded it. In the bosom of the family, the dog gained a name, a personal narrative, and at the end of its life, a burial place. As pets, dogs were mourned by their owners who interred them in pet cemeteries where their final resting places were marked by gravestones. The reverse was true too. In best-known sagas, dogs mourned their owners. Top of the loyalty list is a sky terrier called Greyfriars Bobby, a story made into a heart melting film. Banished from the grave of his impoverished master, Bobby kept faithful vigil at Greyfriars Churchyard in Edinburgh for fourteen years. Bolstered by its reputation for unswerving loyalty, the domestic dog was not just petted, but clearly anthropomorphised. Cuddled, coiffed and beribboned, he or she was also feminized. This highly prized pet dog was an easy target for thieves. By 1837, an estimated 140 dog-stealers were operating in London. In a sequence of events later immortalised by Virginia Woolf in her novel Flush, the poet Elizabeth Barrett's Cocker Spaniel was stolen by a notorious dog-napper. He was returned for a ransom of six guineas. The rise in popularity of the dog, and a concern for the fate of animals in the streets, was also accompanied by the emergence of the first homes for street dogs. A temporary home for lost and starving dogs opened at Holloway, in 1860. Moving south, it became the famous Battersea Dogs' Home. The Times newspaper scoffed at the sentimentality of providing a sanctuary for homeless dogs. The paper commented that it expected that human benevolence would have its limits as far as mere sentimental interference was concerned. Why should there not be a home for rats, it wondered, with tortured logic. The problem of strays was certainly acute. In 1869, it was reported of London that during the five months of the police raid against wandering curs, A staggering 12,465 dogs were taken into the home to be put to sleep, and the rest were either restored to their owners or placed with new ones. The description home, suggests Howell, is also highly significant. A good home was what a dog needed in order to find salvation from wickedness, and it was comparable with the home set up to offer shelter and a better life to fallen women. Battersea Dogs Home provided a route to salvation for some lucky dogs, but also put down the strays that could not be rehomed. In the end, the British, like most nationalities, have a curious relationship with dogs. Dogs on the streets are animals to be feared and to avoid, feral, diseased and dangerous. Pets, however, are pampered and their pedigrees celebrated, but many are neglected and live a curiously unnatural life. As Howell points out, we may be a nation of dog lovers, but it is a conditional kind of love.